So how does a young guy get interested in baseball and stats? Play a dice baseball game that your dad invented. We'll talk about that and more with Peter Kreutzer next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 7th, show number 26 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, PattonandCo.com, and Tout Wars about an early game of dice baseball that his dad invented, some different strategies we're seeing in Tout Wars his top hitters and pitchers analysis for the first half, some thumbs-up and thumbs-down players, and more. We'll have player news from the National League and the American League with Harold Nichols, looking at Kyle Schwarber, Curtis Granderson, Sean Newcomb, and more from the senior circuit, and from the American League, looking at Marcus Semyon, Brad Miller, Lonnie Chisenhall, and others. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Dodgers prospect Alex Verdugo. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota outfield prospect Zach Granite. Sounds like he should be on a Flintstones fantasy league. And Cincinnati starting pitcher Luis Castillo. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at David Price against Chris Archer and other matchups on the weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the most important baseball book ever. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The All-Star break is coming. For me, it's the saddest time of the baseball season. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports with Jock Thompson away. Harold Nichols will be handling the American League and starting off with the National League. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Always good to have you. Let's start in Colorado. Uh, Ian Desmond at the start of the year was on the DL and made room for Mark Reynolds, who made the most of it. Now Ian Desmond is back on the DL, and we see a new guy, Ramel Tapia, playing in the outfield and getting some at-bats. Yeah, and he is. He's making the most of it, too. i not expected to be up long, as we think Ian Desmond should be back after the All-Star break. But in the past week, uh, Tapia has 10 hits and 26 at-bats, two home runs, three RBIs, a 385 batting average, a 153 BPV, really just tearing it up. And a top prospect for Colorado and showing why he is such a top prospect uh, in the last week. Uh, probably not going to remain in the lineup once Desmond comes back and even probably going back down to the minors, but uh, certainly someone to keep your eye on as soon as there is a uh, an injury in Colorado. He's likely to be back and uh, looks as though he's going to make a, make a strong mark. I remember this guy from a couple of years ago. He got uh, called up and everybody was kind of uh, intrigued by Ramel Tapia. He came in, he had good tools, but he didn't uh, fare so well his first time, uh, and especially in the high minors, he started striking out a lot. So uh, what are Ramel Tapia's chances that he's turned it around at such a young age? Well, you know, it looks as though he's beginning to uh, beginning to turn things around a bit. Uh, contact rates in this stay, in these uh, 89 at-bats this season, 79%, which certainly is not bad. Uh, and, of course, the thing we didn't mention earlier is this guy has incredible speed, 169 speed index, 
so he's been able to steal some bases when he gets an opportunity. So it looks as though he may have turned things around at least uh, at this point, but we're still dealing with a guy who's 23 years old. And uh, at this point in, 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 a, in a person's career, uh, I'm sure there's still adjustments to make. The pitchers are adjusting to him. And once that happens and once they see him a second and third time, uh, he'll have to make some adjustments on his own. I did notice the three stolen bases right away for Colorado in this short stint of 89 at-bats so far. That's pretty good speed. That's a 2022 uh, stolen base pace. Uh, in today's day and age especially, that's a lot of stolen bases. That's a valuable uh, part of his uh, his package when he brings it into the into the big leagues. Yeah, it is indeed. And in fact, I think he was batting, batting uh, clean, uh, leadoff last night, so they've uh, they've noted that speed and put him in a good lineup position to take advantage of it. Yeah, the walk rate's not everything it could be. As you said, he's a young guy. He's around 6%, I think, for this year so far, bouncing around 4 to 6% over the last few weeks. So um, sounds like a good young player, uh, maybe more interest to you in dynasty or, or keeper-type formats than he is for this year. But even this year, sounds like he could be worth looking at. Uh, Perhaps the biggest news of the week was Kyle Schwarber getting recalled. Uh, we had, as it turns out, uh, uh, Stephen Nickrand in his June base performance value leaders column for the batting buyer's guide at Baseball HQ had mentioned Schwarber as among the leaders in base performance value for June in spite of the demotion. Uh, so what do we expect from Kyle Schwarber now? Yeah, you know, Kyle Schwarber was, uh, was it's certainly interesting. The, the um, Stephen Nickland mentioned that Kyle Schwarber had the lowest hit rate of any major league hitter during the month of June, a 17% hit rate. And, and so that hit rate is undoubtedly what contributed to the poor batting average and, and helped contribute to his demotion. Uh, and only a 19% hit rate for the season, so much lower than the hit rate he posted during his 2015 rookie campaign, which was at 29%. So uh, still getting a lot of walks, 14% walk rate. Uh, contact has been down a bit, only making a 66% contact rate. So Kyle Schwarber certainly has some things to do. But, uh, you know, I think we're still figuring out exactly who, who Kyle Schwarber is. He's very young yet, uh, and we're, we're just kind of beginning to... Uh, to figure out what he can actually bring to the process. Remember last season, Kyle Schwarber started out, got hurt early, came back in time to be a hero in the World Series. So we really haven't seen everything that Schwarber can do in the majors thus far. I think what we can say is that he's going to probably always be a fairly high strikeout, fairly high walk guy with really good power. And then the question is, can he get that batting average into a place where it's playable for fantasy purposes? I mean, of course, we all like the fact that he's a double-digit home run guy, probably going to drive in some runs, but that'll be limited because he doesn't make enough contact. Uh, strikeouts, you can't drive runs in. We all know that. And right now, at a 168 batting average, boy, you have to have a lot of uh, batting average compensation on your roster to even consider this guy, don't you? Yeah, you do indeed. Uh, earlier this this week, Chris Blessing did an excellent uh, uh, an excellent column under our miners' uh, work called "Trusting the Process," and really was talking about the fact that we've come to expect guys like Kyle Schwarber uh, to come up and do well right away. And you know, you've got to remember that th that these are young ball players, and they've got a lot of adjustments to make. And, uh, Blessing talked about the fact that, first of all, they're putting a big shift on with Schwarber. He was pulling everything, and so they were putting a shift on that was, in fact, uh, cutting down on a lot of the, uh, the, the, uh, the hit, cutting down on the hit rate. And also, a nice analysis of Schwarber's hand position, a mechanics uh, problems in his hand position, not getting his hands into the hitting zone fast enough. Therefore, the fastball was starting to eat him up, and then once he adjusted to that, then the pitchers were showing him off-speed pitches, and that, those were eating him up. So a really excellent article that uh, I think talks about 
the specific problems that Schwarber was having, but also reminds us that these are young ball players and they're going to have to adjust to major league pitching. The uh, the interesting thing that that about Schwarber is once he got down to the minors, he began tearing it up again, and that's why he's back up so quickly. Uh, so uh, probably there's still more adjustments to make. There he is going to be a large, a high strikeout guy, uh, and and still we would hope would be able to hit for for better contact rate down the road. Well, that'll be the that'll be the test, all right. This was a terrific column by Chris Blessing. He also looked at uh, Aledmus Diaz and the Colorado catcher Tom Murphy. And I think the overall point that you mentioned is quite well made by Chris Blessing, and that is sometimes these guys are Francisco Lindor, Carlos Correa, Clay Bellinger, and they come out firing and uh, never look back. But a lot of times it's a tough game. These pitchers respond, and you got to respond in kind. And it, it, when you're a young, relatively inexperienced guy, talent will take you so far. But everybody in the big leagues got talent. That's right, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're, the pitcher during the big leagues and the pitching coaches during the big leagues because they've got this kind of figured out. And so, especially the second and third and fourth time that a team sees a, a hitter like Kyle Schwarber, they they begin to figure out how to adjust. And so. Uh, the hitter has got to figure out a way to adjust right back and deal with things like a shift and and uh, the way in which he's being pitched uh, to still hit the ball solidly and, and make contact and uh, get his hit rate up. We should say that uh, Kyle Schwarber is not being projected as a world beater. You're not going to get a $25 player here, more like 5 or 6 bucks, according to the Baseball HQ projection. Uh, 11 home runs will be nice, but that 236 batting average will be a problem. Uh, Curtis Granderson got off to a, such a slow start this year, Nick, that there were people saying he was done and that people were dropping him and, uh, and not drafting him uh, in later drafts. All of a sudden in June, he's got elite skills, and Stephen Nickran covered this in his June column as well. He really turned it around in June, and uh, over his last month, Curtis Granderson, a 329 batting average, nine home runs, uh, along with a couple of stolen bases. So uh, suddenly the power began to manifest itself in June, and we've, we've discovered that maybe Curtis Granderson isn't, uh, isn't dead after all. Uh, it looks like he's going to have his, he's well on his way now to his third straight 25-plus home run season as we uh, head into the All-Star break, 13 home runs, 36 RBIs. Uh, batting average is still low. Uh, in part because of a low a low hit rate, but uh, keep an eye on Curtis Granderson. If he's getting dropped in a league that you're in, uh, right now he's showing some uh, some uh, vintage kinds of skills. You know what struck me when I looked at uh, Granderson's skills is that they're almost exactly the same as Kyle Schwarber's: fourteen percent walk rate, mid sixties contact rate, and yet uh, he seems to be doing a lot more with it than Kyle Schwarber has been historically. Um, maybe they can both turn it around. Uh, in Atlanta, the starting pitcher Jaime Garcia showed some really good skills in June. Stephen Nickran covering this, and he had a six seventy five ERA for the month. So there may be a buying opportunity here. Yeah, there may indeed. I mean, Jaime Garcia had a, had an awful June in terms of his surface stats. A uh, the, the, his ERA was just was just terrible, but a 112 BPV um, and some good skills. 8.4 DOM, a 2.6 control, 52% ground ball rate. Uh, the interesting thing about Jaime Garcia is that he has some real home road splits. He's not pitching well in Atlanta. Doesn't uh, really seem to like the new ballpark. But on the road, an ERA around four. So uh, if you've got a league where you can uh, can spot start a guy based on whether he's pitching at home or away, and whether he's if that away game is not in Colorado or in Arizona or a, uh, a torch park like that, then you know Jaime Garcia is certainly a guy to look at because he's thrown some good games, he's showing some decent skills, and in the right situation could be a uh, a good starter for a week 
uh, as long as you can manage to, uh, to, to put him in and out of your lineup. I, I, I understand that. I think there are some reasons for caution here. His strikeout rate has declined again back to 2015 levels. He's under seven strikeouts per nine, which is, boy, considering the strikeout environment, Nick, nowadays, seven strikeouts per nine used to be quite something, but now it's quite not something. And and uh, his walk rate has kind of stabilized, but it's still over three per nine uh, command ratio, therefore right around two strikeouts per walk. And all of these things don't point to the kind of Jaime Garcia we remember when he was a $16, $17 pitcher a few years ago. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And certainly some, some reason for real caution here, but uh, at the same time, some good skills. And if you're desperate for a starting pitcher, uh, someone at least to take a look at. Uh, I might point out that during, the, uh, during that bad stretch in June when his ERA was so high, uh, all, of those, all of those games except for one uh, were at home. And uh, as we said, he's pitched far better on the road. It's a tough park for home runs and giving up runs anyway, so maybe there's something to that. But, of course, he's going to keep playing there. That's something you got to keep in mind. They're not going to change parks to, to make Jaime Garcia look better. Uh, finally, staying in Atlanta, the left-hander Sean Newcomb is being heavily added to leagues all over the uh, fantasy baseball landscape after a decent start since he debuted in June. He's got one PQS5 to his credit, a couple of PQS3s, and he's been heavily added. Joseph Pitleski writes a terrific column for BaseballHQ.com. It's called The Market Pulse, and he looks around at seeing who's being added and who's being dropped and making some comments, and he noted Sean Newcomb being heavily added, and then he said, be careful. Yeah, he sure did say be careful because gave him a yellow tab based on what he was seeing of Sean Newcomb, and you're right, Sean Newcomb got off to a great start at PQS5 in his first game, but since then, a one, two, threes, and uh, and then just after that column was written, a zero. Uh, certainly some reasons to to uh, watch out, with I think, with Sean Newcomb, because, uh, again, we're talking about a young guy who probably has a terrific future, but uh, at this point, some control issues, had control issues in the minors, uh, early on, some control issues in, in the majors, 3.3 control uh, thus far. Uh, and some of those minor control issues are beginning to, to pop back up on him. Uh, and a, uh, only a 72 BPV, uh, that's good, but not, uh, not elite. Uh, and just got absolutely blasted in his last outing in a, uh, a game against, uh, against Houston. Uh, 3.3 innings pitched, 10 hits, 7 earned runs. Uh, got absolutely clobbered. And so there's some bumps down the road for Sean Newcomb. Uh, not somebody I would jump to add at this point. Uh, only 24 years old, maybe a great pitcher in another year or two. That outing against Houston, uh, July the 4th, and certainly there were fireworks, but not the kind uh, Sean Newcomb liked. He, he's a big guy. He's 6'5", 250, uh, kind of getting towards tight end size. And sometimes, uh, Nick, those big, tall guys have some trouble getting things sorted out as far as consistency of their mechanics. Yeah, that's true. And, and you can see that if you look at the strikeout, look at his games and the strikeout rate. One of the things that, that got people's attention in that first game was seven strikeouts and six innings pitched against the Mets. But then the next two games, three strikeouts, three strikeouts uh, against San Diego, a, a wonderful game, eight strikeouts, one walk, uh, six innings pitched, no earned runs. But then, uh, as, as we said, against Houston, uh, again, probably mechanics, as you said, were not, were out of whack. Two strikeouts, two walks, uh, and as we said, got uh, uh, put up those 4th of July fireworks. 
But mind you, Houston's a tough team, boy. They can put up fireworks on anybody. And uh, the, the other thing that strikes me about uh, Sean Newcomb is for such a big guy, 93-mile-an-hour fastball is not uh, so elite that you'd uh, sit up and take notice. Nick, uh, thanks very much for this National League update. And uh, now with Jock Thompson uh, out of the country on a secret mission, he's incommunicado. So you're going to stay on and help us out with the American League report as well. Let's open with the Oakland Athletics. And they finally reinstated shortstop Marcus Semyon from the 60-day DL. Uh, he came back up on Thursday. He's been suffering from a wrist injury. Rod Truesdell covered this for Baseball HQ. I assume Semyon slots right back into the starting shortstop position. Yeah, I'm sure he will. He went down uh, uh, before he got to 50 plate appearances, so it's hard to draw too many inferences. But one interesting note, he drew 10 walks in 46 plate appearances, a 22% walk rate. Uh, this guy has an 8% career walk rate, so either that was a fluke or a real improvement in his in his game. Uh, also had four stolen bases in just two weeks. Uh, he's just now reaching age 26. So that's the, the kind of a peak age when we expect a guy to be able to, to kind of perhaps take off. Uh, last two years, double-digit home runs and stolen bases, but a low batting average in 2016. Uh, if the walk rate change is real and he maintains a mid-70s contract rate, could be a good guy to, to get on your roster. We're projecting eight home runs, six stolen bases, 240-ish batting average, uh, but there, there could be some upside in that projection. I had Semyon uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, he was a real find. A low batting average you have to suffer along with, but boy, oh boy, he had some uh, had some power, had some speed. It's a good combination in the modern game. And because batting averages are down across the board, sometimes that lowish batting average, a 235, 240 batting average, used to be a killer, Nick. You, you and I can both remember uh, 10 years ago or so, a 240 batting average was borderline unrosterable. But now with batting averages down around, uh, what, 250? now 248 something like that across the piece you got a 240 or 235 yeah it's bad but it's not death that's right it's it's absolutely not deathly anymore and you know we you, they're guys holding on to regular major league slots now with uh, with batting average at the below the mendoza line so uh you're absolutely right about that at the same time they recalled semi and the A's put right-hander Jarrell Cotton on the 10-day DL. He's got something going on with his thumb. And they transferred right-hander Andrew Triggs to the 60-day DL. He's got some kind of hip issue. It's looking like Andrew Triggs may be done for the year. Uh, what happens when Cotton's rotation slot comes up this weekend? Rod Truesdell expects the A's to demote uh, rookie shortstop Franklin Barreto. Uh, with Simeon back, Barreto is no longer needed. Uh, and so is likely to go back down. And journeyman Chris Smith will probably get a spot start uh, against Seattle this weekend. Um, 92 career innings in Major League Baseball, all in relief. Fastball only reaches the upper 80s. Uh, but Smith stepped up last year with a, uh, a strikeout rate uh, to nearly 11 strikeouts per nine innings. But his dom rate is back this year, more toward career norms at AAA. Uh, some trouble with control, 4.7 walks per nine innings a year ago. Uh, so some, unless there's some sort of miracle start or two, he's likely to stay... Uh, not likely to stay in the majors long before he goes back to the minors, and I think not really an option this week uh, for fantasy owners. I agree with you on that, uh, Nick. It's always tempting to grab any kind of living, breathing guy when you're trying to replace a starter in your fantasy roster because of all the injuries, but you also have to be aware of the limitations of some of these guys who are getting starts only because of those injuries and can really hurt you, especially it's conceivable this guy could get his one start, and if he's on your roster for it, he could add 10 earned runs and, and you know, three innings to your to your line. It's not going to be helpful. Having said that, he could also throw a no-hitter. Who knows? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, this is not the kind of guy that has the, the kind of credentials that I would make me say, okay, I'll take a shot, uh, you know, with it, at, against, uh, it is against Seattle. But Seattle's been playing fairly well lately, so it's a thing to be careful. The Tigers' left-hander Daniel Norris was placed on the 10-day DL on Thursday with a strained left groin. Tom Kephart covered this for Baseball HQ. So what happens with Norris out in the Detroit rotation? The most likely replacement for Norris at this point is left-hander Matt Boyd. Uh, like Norris, Boyd has struggled with control and command this year. Uh, 11 early season starts for Detroit, and then he was demoted. Uh, 37 strikeouts, 24 walks, 55 innings pitched, uh, barely got to five innings per start. So uh, that's what we're looking at with uh, with Matt Boyd. I think, again, not a guy that you want to uh, to grab to replace Norris. How soon they fall, because I remember in the preseason, Matt Boyd and Daniel Norris were kind of looked at as sleeper-type pitchers that you might want to grab. And now here you got Norris, who was okay, but hurt, and uh, actually Matt Boyd hasn't been good at all. Uh, they called up uh, Blaine Hardy. Uh, what will his role be? Uh, like Boyd, Hardy has spent most of the first two months uh, of the season with Detroit, uh, demoted in early June after 20 relief appearances. Uh, 13 strikeouts, 6 walks, and 17 innings pitched. Uh, did manage 5 holds. Uh, likely to be bullpen, bullpen filler at this point. A low leverage relief. Uh, maybe a lefty specialist, but uh, not likely to get enough of a role that uh, he's going to have any fantasy relevance. In Tampa, they finally recalled uh, Brad Miller from the disabled list. Uh, he's going to be coming up this weekend, I think, as early as Friday, perhaps. Uh, Miller currently on rehab in Class AAA Durham. Matt Dodge had the coverage on this story. What are the playing time effects when Brad Miller returns to the big league lineup? Will not be shortstop with the signing of, uh, of Hechiaveria. Expect him to be returning to Tampa this weekend to cover second base. Uh, Tim Beckham was out of the lineup Thursday night while he was nursing a, a sore left ankle. Yeah, I saw that in uh, Matt Dodge's coverage, the playing time assignments were a 20% decrease for Tim Beckham, who had been playing pretty well, but it was slumping, and now he's hurt, and a 20% gain for Brad Miller uh, to compensate, of course. He has been a useful fantasy asset in the past, Brad Miller. What do we expect when he gets back into the lineup this time? He was certainly a valuable uh, double-digit fantasy guy for the past two seasons, 2015-2016, 13 stolen bases in 2015. 30 home runs in 2016, but uh, hit below 260 both both seasons. But certainly struggling during the first part of this year before he went on the DL. Uh, fantasy value around zero, sub-Mendoza batting average, two home runs, four stolen bases, 139 at-bats, uh, lots of swing and misses with a 66% contact rate, ground ball rate over 50%, uh, a, a kind of a flukish 19% walk rate, and a 169 speed kept his fantasy value from dropping below zero. Uh, on the other, on the flip side, with making good hard contact, uh, maybe the injury issues were the problem. Uh, two DL trips with uh, an oblique and a groin, so maybe those things were getting in the way. Our projection at this point is pretty conservative. Uh, five home runs, five stolen bases, kind of a replacement level guy for the rest of the season. Yeah, that seems like a reasonable projection. Uh, we could say that there's some upside here as well, based on the fact that he has been a pretty useful fantasy guy the last couple of years, as you mentioned, but... Between the injuries and uh, all the other things that go on in a guy's career, at this point, I can't see him being added by many mixed league players. In an American league only, I can see it because, you know, in, in that format, especially with how few hitters there are available, if Brad Miller comes up in your league, hey, five home runs, five stolen bases the rest of the way could be a difference maker. Yeah, it could indeed. So, you know, if, if that's if that's the kind of thing that's going to make a difference to you and, and uh, you can sacrifice a little bit of batting average, certainly worth, worth uh, taking a look at. 
A little earlier when we were talking in the National League, Nick, we mentioned Stephen Nickran's batting buyer's guide coverage, looking at base performance value leaders for the month of June, and I noticed two Cleveland players on the list. Francisco Lindor, hey, we've come to expect high performance from him, but how about outfielder Lonnie Chisenhall? What about Lonnie Chisenhall? We've been waiting on Lonnie Chisenhall for a while to kind of break out, and certainly he showed those uh, the kind of skills we've been anticipating in June. A 1.052 OPS in June. Uh, much of that was the result of a 43% hit rate driving a 373 batting average, which, of course, is not going to, to keep up. But his power has taken some legitimate steps forward this season. Uh, 153 expected uh, power index, more than double the levels of the past two seasons. A big jump in walk rate uh, into double digits for the first time. And walk rate, as we know, is an indicator of power. Uh, also worth noting that Chisinau seems to have figured out left-handed pitchers finally. OPS typically in the 600s against Southpaws the last few years, now solidly in the 900s, uh, although Cleveland usually sits him against left-handers, so uh, we've got kind of a small sample size issue that could be driving that, but an interesting guy to look at, but there are, I think, some cautions before you go all in on Chisinau. Uh, this is the first year that his hard contact index is over the league average, and just barely at that, at 106. Uh, it's 217 is this year's uh, expected power index, is double last year and the previous year. Uh, it's possible for a player to develop power later in his career, but got to be, be careful with sudden gains like that. Uh, current projection for Chisinau, eight home runs, 42 RBIs, and 400 bats the rest of the way. Um, still a $15 fantasy asset, but not the world beater he's been for the last month. I think a guy like Chisenhall is interesting. Uh, I think he's playable in mixed leagues and um, pretty much a must-have in uh, single-league formats. And the, the thing about Chisenhall that intrigues me is I'm going to be watching to see if Cleveland starts playing him more against left-handed pitchers because that would be an indicator to me that the team believes that he's turned it around against them after many years of being uh, you know barely rosterable against left-handed pitching but murdering right-handers. He's still on the good side of the platoon, but if I see Cleveland giving Lonnie Chisenhall some left-handed uh, pitching at-bats, I'm going to be very, very interested. Absolutely. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the American League and the National League, and we'll talk to you again uh, next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat, and this week on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's going to be our feature expert interview, Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, Patton & Co., and Tout Wars. Stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. And the Cardinals have won the game by the score of three to two. And a home run by the Wizards. Go crazy. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, PattonandCo.com, and Tout Wars. Peter, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for having me. 
Let's start with your uh, Tout Wars uh, head-to-head experiment. We talked about this in the aftermath of Tout Wars. You adopted a somewhat unorthodox approach because you were playing head-to-head and wanted to take advantage of some of the game's structure. You bought, uh, spent heavily on runs, on-base percentage, and stolen bases for the hitting side, and ERA whip and strikeouts per nine on the pitching side, taking advantage of that strikeouts per nine instead of just raw strikeouts. Just to remind listeners, why did you take that approach? Well, the, the, um, what I hoped was going to be an efficiency that I saw was that um, we have a relatively low minimums inning requirement, 950 for the year. And, um, and one of the categories is K per nine, and the two others are ERA and ratio. So just getting the minimum innings each week with um, good qualitatives means that you don't have to load up on, um, you don't have to win the, the wins and saves. And um, that seemed to me I could put together a pretty decent pitching staff for uh, not very much money. And I, I thought be assured of winning every week um, the pitching side of things. The, on the hitting, um, I knew that I thought I could load up on um, on base percentage and stolen base guys at the at the top of the order. Um, runs since it, they also skew toward power hitters, I would lose some weeks, and I wouldn't go undefeated for the season, but I thought I had a pretty decent chance of winning some weeks, winning both hitting and pitching um, in a fair number of weeks and splitting on the pitching other weeks. Um, and that, that, would, that was, I thought that would be a winning strategy. As it is, I'm in fourth place, but I'm well behind uh, Vlad Sedler and, and Andrea Lamont, who, um, who have put together really good teams. And was their approach more traditional, try to cover all the categories? Their um, their approach was more traditional. They um, they did not uh, go crazy heavy in the on the pitching. You know, adding starting pitchers who don't have good strikeout um, rates, and um, uh, but they definitely went with power and and uh, something that I eschewed. Um, I saw almost immediately that I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake um, in terms of relying on Trey Turner and, and Jonathan VR for on base percentage. Um, both were excellent on base guys last year, but that was because Turner hit for a high batting average. And that was because VR hit for, you know, an okay batting average and walks a lot. Um, VR has been so terrible this year that, um, that even with, and, and he stopped walking. I mean, his game went so, so far south, um, that he wasn't a help. I, I ended up doing a lot of waiver shopping and adding home runs and, in, and in many of the, game since I've actually won in home runs and RBIs because I was able to add those sorts of guys. Um, last week was the first week where I actually um, won the three pitching categories that I expected to win, and, uh, and, I, and I won on base percentage and stolen bases. So it, it was sort of coming around. Paul Sporer, somewhat controversially at the time, adopted a strategy to go very extreme stars and scrubs, especially on his hitting side. He had a lot of the top hitters. His team is struggling in the standings so far, however. What do you think went awry for Paul with this uh, extreme stars and scrubs strategy? Well, I think the, the biggest um, in, um, I, I, in a 12-team mixed league, uh, stars and scrubs is the way to go. The, the scrubs are not really scrubs. They're you know everyday, regular players. Um, of, of actual real quality. Um, so going, going for the best players is really the way to go. The problem for him was that, um, he didn't load up on 
um, strikeout per nine starting pitchers. And, and once you give up K's for nine, um, then you really, you're going to have to beat teams that, that are playing like I am. And there are a few others. I think Howard Bender and, um, and, uh, somebody else is, is also, you know, um, eschewing quantity in, in favor of quality, you're going to come into weeks where you get killed that way. And um, Paul's hitting numbers are pretty solid, although, you know, not as good. They're not the best. Um, but on the pitching side, he's struggled. In Tutmore, generally, Peter, I looked at all the leagues and I noticed there seemed to be some very wide spreads between the top and bottom to- points totals. Uh, in the National League, it's 106 at the top, 29.5 and, and 33 at the bottom. In mixed auction, it's 120 to 35.5. Mixed draft is 110-ish, all the way down to 21. Uh, the American League league that I play in has nobody over 100, nobody under 45, so it might be the exception that tests the rule. What do you think might be at the root of this stratification in those other leagues? It's it's really hard to say. I mean, one way one aspect is the way you look at it. Um, in some of those leagues, there's one woeful, woeful team at the bottom of the standings, and that's really not representative of the the whole league, the league as a whole. Um, but it is true also that in most of the leagues, um, there aren't tight pennant races. Um, in the AL, Mike Padres are lead, and in the, in the NL. Um, Gray Albright, um, who is sitting in my NL seat, um, he's in the lead with a, and he's been in the lead all all season. Last winter, I, he said, "How am I going to get to stay in this NL league? When are you going to kick me out?" And I said, "Well, one way to make sure that you stay in the league is to win it. If you win it, you're, you know, that kind of gives you permanent rights to that that seat." And um, so far, he's doing his best to uh, make that happen. Um, so I, I don't really know that there's a, a specific thing. Um, it, it is there. There are some truly terrible teams, and I can only think that that's um, there've been, you know, some serious injuries, and um, and there's also a tendency in these leagues to um, try to do something extreme to try and get an edge, which when that doesn't work can also lead to a really bad outcome. I haven't looked at it, the bad teams closely enough to know what happened to them, but. Um, I think it's more an aberration than than a trend of any sort. That's that's what I was primarily interested in, Peter, was whether you thought this might be some kind of trend. When I looked at the teams and I gave them a, a cursory look at best, it did seem to be a combination uh, mostly of injuries. If if you have a league where some of the most devastating injuries happen to be concentrated on a single team, then obviously that's going to crush a team if if they've lost you know a couple of $30 players, Trey Turner or something, and, uh, and one other. Madison Bumgarner say uh, that's going to really hurt their ability and it has nothing to do with the actual game just has to do with bad luck in that regard especially uh, in the instance of a guy like Bumgarner because you know one of the things everybody said about Bumgarner going into the draft season was he's a good guy to draft because he never gets hurt but nobody told us he'd be out there riding on this motorcycle yeah that's that's that is um as random as it can possibly get except for maybe like uh falling down, putting on your cowboy boots or something. 
Yeah, that happens once in a while. I remember a few years ago, Joel Zamaya did something to his shoulder while he was hurriedly packing boxes to stay ahead of a fire that was threatening to consume his house in California. I, I know this is something, Peter, you and the other members of the Tout Board usually discuss after the season, but has what has happened so far this year created any impetus for rules changes that are going to be, if not adopted, at least on your guys' agenda when you come to meet about the rules? Um, I, there hasn't really been anything that that's jumped out. The, you know, the big story this year um, is the the ten day injury list has led to many, many more players um, cycling on and off and and coming back. You know, within our, our transaction cycle is seven days, so a, a guy goes on ten days um, and is back. You know, basically less than one a, a second full cycle later. Um, so I, th- I think we'll take a look at that. I'm not sure that we can do anything. It doesn't. The basic facts of injuries have stayed the same. Um, people get hurt, go on the disabled list. It's just how how severe the injury is and how long the team waits to put them on um, that has changed. Uh, the um, anyway, there. Uh, in the past, we've experimented. We had some obvious experiments and, and that we've kept in place, like. Um, moving from batting average to on-base percentage. We had another big one was using the Vickery um, auction system rather than uh, the, the straight auction, um, which we did last year because um, there was a bookkeeping problem was the primary primary issue that was that with um, contingency bids and people's bid limits. Um, it was hard to... The stat service couldn't implement Vickery on the weeks when everybody bid all their money and have the right bids, the right contingent bids happen when a team lost a bid or when they won an earlier bid. That's not a very good explanation, but it, it was, that was the no, basis of um, going back from from Vickery. Um, I think we've also recognized that giving the best information to the widest audience is really a, um, a an important thing, which is why we've expanded into different formats, the auction league and, and now the head-to-head league, um, so that people can look at what we're doing and what our experts are doing and, and uh, maybe, you know, get some entertainment and information out of that. And of course, Tout Wars also adopted, at least in the single league formats, where the uh, change in the major league roster construction has really badly affected the split between hitting and pitching. Tout Wars went to a optional 14th guy that you could make a hitter or a pitcher, which which can help you. Uh, I had a thought about the disabled list issue because I've been seeing it in not only in Tout Wars, but in other leagues that I follow with friends of mine in them and so forth. And that is, is there a move towards or a thinking about allowing a guy to reactivate a disabled list guy midweek. Yeah, we can do it right now in Tout Wars, but only if we have another guy who can go to the DL or if we're willing to release a guy from our active roster. Is there any thought towards, say, if a guy comes back on Tuesday or Wednesday and we'd like to get him back in our in our active roster to just let us reactivate a guy at that point and re- reserve somebody from the active roster rather than having to release him? Well, that is a, that is a good topic for discussion. Um the the um, bookkeeping issues there are complex because uh, you don't we want to discourage teams from streaming players and making decisions. So if you have a guy coming off the DL and he's facing Kershaw um, the first game back, you might say, okay, well I'm not going to 
and and his and the guy that he's replacing is playing in Colorado, you you might put it off for a day, um, and we don't want to have that. So um, it is possible to set it up so that you have to bring somebody back the first day, but sometimes that first day is um, is obscured by the news or something. Right. They, you don't you don't see it. Um, so. Restricting it to one day is, is a problem. Not restricting it to one day is a problem, and um, which is why we have the, the cost. If you want to bring somebody back midweek, um, you can either activate them on Monday or in, in advance of him coming back and get the free move, or you have to re- release a guy. And I, that um, is an imperfect but um, a compromise that I think is working in terms of keeping teams honest as far as streaming goes. You mentioned the uh, experimental formats that we've had over the last few years. The head-to-head has been added. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think we had an experimental league that played on a monthly basis, the old Ron Chandler format. Uh, is there any thought in the Tout Wars brain trust hierarchy to start, start looking again at completely different kind of formats for experimental purposes? Um, we would love to do that. It's uh, it's really a matter of resources. Uh, the, we are um, stretched thin running the the five leagues we've got and um, and getting people interested and involved in the experimental format. The, the year we did the Chandler format, um, people were, Ron was pushing it. The, the, the game is fun. The game was, was great fun. People really liked it. Um, but it, um, but getting them to, the next year, getting them to try a different format, the response from um, the touts was, you know, very much, I, it's really hard for me to dedicate time to doing something that I can't write about, that isn't relevant to the, what, to the, what I write for whoever I write. And, um, and that's, a, that's obviously a concern. We've talked the last couple of years of um, doing uh, more low-maintenance type of experiments that w- where guys, touts could get together over a tout weekend, let's say, and um, do drafts of, you know, just say what if it was just home runs? Who would you draft, and and then do that and and make that like and see what happens. Speaking of home runs, we are seeing them this year, especially becoming more democratized, with many more hitters achieving really good home run totals, while the top guys don't improve. And I don't want to get into whether it's the ball or PEDs or you know phases of the moon or sunspots or whatever. But stolen bases at the same time are seeing a class divide in the other direction, fewer bags overall, and many more of them concentrated at the top. If this trend continues, where we have fewer and fewer stolen base guys and more and more home run guys, are leagues going to have to start thinking about making some changes in how the categories are weighted or how the categories are even chosen? I, to my mind, really, this is you know goes to the question of Major League Baseball doing something silly like outlying shifts, or um, what, what are some of the other things that are limiting the number of relief pitchers um, that you can use. The, um, the The fact of the matter is that these 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 things are cyclical. They go up and they go down through the history of baseball. The number of steals, the number of home runs have gone up and down, and um, and we're at a, we're in a moment of a very extreme cycle. Um, the uh, the home runs have never been there. Have never been more home runs hit. There have never been more strikeouts thrown or committed or whatever you, for hitters. Um, 
so this is very much a, a moment that is maybe uh, again we could go on for days about the reasons why it's possible it's possible and um, I think that in terms of strategies it offers up all sorts of new ways to approach player valuation and that the people who figure out how to properly value players in the context of, of this um, environment are are the ones who are going to have the advantage and uh, and who are going to do better and the people who get who are stuck thinking about it the old way are going to be left behind and, and struggle um, it's the way baseball works and, and that really is the way our game works too it's uh, it, all the pieces fit together just not always in the same way from year to year. Of course, Tout Wars a couple of years ago also started a daily tournament involving the many touts. Uh, usually I think we get about 35 per per session. We play in four-week cycles, and then the top three guys in each cycle, I believe, go to the final. I was talking with Todd Zola about the Tout Daily Tournament, uh, and we talked in particular, Peter, about the seeming irony of building a tournament format that emphasizes consistency in success. You don't get in by winning a single week. You have to do well over an entire four-week cycle. But then we've left the Tout Daily Championship as a one-day winner-take-all type of thing, which seems to be way more lucky than it is about consistency. Has the Tout board considered or made any thoughts about maybe making the final a multiple-day event, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of that weekend? That's an interesting idea. I haven't talked to anybody about it, and um, and I and um, I'm sure if if Todd likes it, we will uh, definitely have that discussion in the off season. It's. Um, the irony of it, I guess, is that um, the week-to-week consistency in the four-week four periods um, promotes the teams that are playing better, doing better in terms of the um, the game, I suppose. Um, the winner-take-all format, though, very much requires people with DFS experience to roster up their team for that last period in a way that um, gives them a tournament chance, which is a different style of DFS play than than the tournament. I mean, than than the the four week period play. So, um, I know that Charlie Wiegert the first year won because he was the only guy to roster Clayton Kershaw, um, and and he got it right. Kershaw was the most expensive player out there, but he was also the most productive player, and that won him the tournament because nobody else thought that way. Um, I don't know how you did it last year, but it, it's um, me. Either. But you can you can perhaps share your uh, one week strategy um, in the in the context of last year's contest. Contest. Well, well I'm, I'm not, not an experienced, experienced uh, daily player. I don't play for money. money. Uh, uh, I, I enjoy the tournament. But when when, I, when it came to last year, my strategy or my tactic, tactic actually, I don't think you can have a strategy for such a short-run thing, but uh, basically what I did was use WOBA right-handed versus left-handed, and the, the critical decision I made that helped me beat Tristan Cockroft was I took Brandon Geyer and he took Bryce Harper. And, you know, on the face of it, you'd think, well, the guy who takes Bryce Harper is going to win that particular matchup nine times out of ten or 95 times out of 100. And we had, uh, otherwise, our lineups were very, very similar across the board, and uh, that's, that's what makes me think, me think uh, I was happy to win, don't, don't get me wrong, but it, to my way of thinking, any format that gives you a win because you chose Brandon Geyer over Bryce Harper, I'd like to say it was a genius level thought by me, uh, but it was uh, purely luck, especially since uh, Geyer got 
four or five points in the last two innings of a 13 to one blowout that he should never have even been playing in. So I don't know. I thought if you said that's the daily game. I thought, I thought that, that if it was set up as a Friday Sunday thing, we could set it up like a golf tournament, you know, where on Friday night you cut out half the people, who the bottom half are, are don't don't make the cut, and then on Saturday night the next half don't make the cut, and then it's all the marbles on Sunday, but with a much smaller amount of guys, and then you get back to the idea that you know may the best team win and so so forth. I think it's interesting. I hope you guys look into it and figure it out because uh, I think tournament these type of closed tournament daily things are going to be a thing in daily fantasy baseball at some point because guys like to play against guys they know rather than just against this huge army of unknown players. I, I agree with you, and I, th- I like that idea of um, the, the elimination tournament um, over, the, over the final weekend. I think that makes a great deal of sense, and we will talk for sure. Okay, and if you adopt it, I get like a 10-year exemption, like if I won the Masters or something. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from Ask Rotoman and uh, PattonandCo.com, and of course the uh, leading light of Tout Wars. And Peter, on Wednesday at your site, AskRotoman.com, you released your list of the top 20 big hitters for the first half based on their dollar values thus far. I looked at the uh, Baseball HQ valuations the other day for my own purposes. Paul Goldschmidt was at the top of the table, followed by Aaron Judge. I'm going to guess yours is pretty similar, but who made your list? Um, I, I have Judge a little bit ahead of um, Goldsmith, but it, I mean it, the, um, the the math differences there mean that it are are relatively uh, they they outshine the uh, whatever. If guys are next to each other, you can rank them either way, depending on league and how and how your dollars fall. Plus, um, I for simplicity's sake. I um, rank my guys using uh, 2014 mixed league formats, AL and NL together. That is not um, what you want to do if you play in an AL or NL only league. But in terms of looking at players and how they're performing relative to the preseason expectations, I think it, it, it works better than um, counting every dime in the context of the of the separate leagues. Um, so it's it's you know it, it isn't the most serious serious. Um, roto analysis in terms of the prices earned. It's very much about who is living up to expectations, who's behind expectations, and then trying to figure out why. I agree with you. I think the uh, you know the fact that one guy's at thirty one dollars and forty cents, the other guy is at thirty one twenty five. I remember back in my university days, I was obliged by university rules to take a natural science. I took astronomy, and the one thing that the instructor tried to beat into our heads in our lab sessions was this idea of significant figures, and you have to have the knowledge that there's a certain amount of precision that you can't claim. And uh, I think in this instance, that might be a, a good example of it. You also noted each of the top hitters' profit or loss based on those preseason projections, which would probably be pretty close to their draft prices in most auctions, I'm going to guess. I'm going to, again, assume that Aaron Judge must have been the top dog in profit this year, but who else showed big profits in your list? I have both Judge and Goldschmidt at $39 um, in in the mixed 2014 league, in the, and in the AL and NL, they're both at $40 for um, their individual league prices. In terms of the profits... Aaron Judge is way ahead with $34 profit, um, but there are some, you know, there are some really significant guys who were, we totally wrote off before the season. Um, when Ryan Zimmerman was going for $8 in the preseason, I was thinking, this is like the most nonsense. I, 
why you would put anything down on this guy it was beyond me and um he's right now he's earning $35 and um showing a $27 profit Justin Smoke is another guy who um who wasn't going for any real money um and is is uh earning $28 at this point and um Corey Dickerson is another guy who um you know a, a veteran of limited skills was going for $9 in the preseason that seemed like a perfectly fair par price, but he's um, earning $23 in profit. The same as Avisel Garcia, who's a much different type of player, a former prospect, struggled a little making adjustments. Um, he's having a you know inflated batting average type of year, but um, he has some real power, and he's not. He, I don't think we can expect him to be a $28 player at the end of the year, especially given his recent struggles and his injury, but um, he's not like a a, a guy, a veteran that everybody gave, a former prospect to everybody had totally given up on, like, smoke. He had a little more life to him. And those are the, the top group of, of hitters. Who are the top value pitchers and who are the top profit pitchers? Scherzer is, is by far and away the far and away the highest-earning pitcher at this point, um, $49. This came after um, the... the preseason injury problems that seem like they might cost him time or even the chance to pitch this season. He's thrown, you know, all that out the window. Um, Kershaw, of course, is second. He's earned uh, 30, 43, which is pretty much what his preseason price was. No profit there, just steady, steady Clayton. Um, Chris Sale is at the top of, is up there. Um, also a guy whose price was maybe a dollar, a little bit down because of the move to, um, moved to Boston, supposedly lefties can't pitch in Fenway Park. <laughs> um, the real, the first guy who shows up on the list who is, um, like you go, whoa, is Jason Vargas. Whoa! Who, um, I've always liked as, you know, one of these guys who really knows how to pitch, is effective despite not blowing guys away, um, but he really, he, he has decent stuff and he really works it and, um, and can be very effective. He's been you know, over his head totally for the, so far, but um, so far he's made it. He's made it work. You also put out a second set of lists, uh, both hitters and pitchers. But instead of just their values, you based it on the top preseason projected guys and then provided their outcomes. Uh, did you notice any commonalities among the players who either made really big profits based on their preseason projection or really big losses? No, there's. I mean, you know, it's there. Those those kind of players, they're they're kind of like unhappy families. They all have the same. Uh, they all have different stories, which um, and I, I hope I got that right. Um, they all have different stories. There's you know the guys like Zimmerman who looked like he was um, uh, looked like he was washed up. He had degenerative hip injury. He was um, he was getting older. There wasn't really a spot for him. And um, and then all of a sudden he you know he made a spot for himself and he and he's played terrifically. Um, there are other people like uh, on the on the inside. Um, Chase Anderson wasn't even wasn't drafted in the preseason and is a terrific year um, in Milwaukee. Uh, and um, they so there are the old guys. There's young guys who pop up who weren't much. There wasn't much expected um, on the losing side. There are plenty of guys like uh, Manny Machado and and uh, progressively Francisco Lindor who had, people had huge expectations for, who just aren't 
producing um, in, in, you know, the meaningful across-the-board way that they were expected to produce, and um, they're grave disappointments at this point. When I did a similar sort of thing a week or two ago for Baseball HQ, Peter, I had somebody commented on one of the stories, you got to remember that a guy who went for $30 in the draft really has nowhere to go but down in most cases, and a guy who was drafted for a buck has nowhere to go but up, really. I mean, it's going, he's not going to uh, sink that much further, and there is that element to it. But uh, if we ignore players with injury-related losses, Mike Trout, uh, Madison Bumgarner, uh, Josh Donaldson, almost three-quarters of the top 15 unhurt players made losses. And we're talking about who the guys who were projected at the top of the hitting ranks, while less than 60% of unhurt pitchers made losses. And among the gainers, the top pitchers had more double-digit profits, Scherzer and Sale, while the top hitter profit amongst preseason top guys was Charlie Blackman, and he's only plus $4. The moral I draw from this is that it makes more sense to go stars and scrubs on pitchers and less sense to go stars and scrubs on hitters. What thoughts did you take away from these snapshots of the year's results? Well, I, I think that is, I, I've been um, pushing this idea for years now, and I, I won't claim that I, I, it's wholly original with me, but I've done a lot of research on it. And best pitchers, when they don't get hurt, are the best pitchers year after year. And um, we often say that hit, pitching is less reliable than hitting, but that's only because hitters get injured more. Um, and be, the the best pitchers are as reliable as the best hitters are. Um, and there's much more upside. We discount hitters' prices in the draft because um, we factor in the risk of injury to them. We don't, we, give them, um, we don't give them full credit for their contributions at the end of the season when we do our prices because of this discount of what they're paid. Um, that's half the categories are pitching categories, but we only spend 30% of the money on those half. Um, and the, the buying opportunity there is to buy a, a, a ace, an anchor, a, a top pitcher, and then try and fill in with cheaper p- pitchers. And um, and if you get lucky with a, an Irvin Santana or a Jason Vargas, you then all of a sudden have a solid pitching staff. And you can fill it out, even in 5x5, five five, with um, middle relievers and, and uh, you know guys like Rich Hill, who might might have gone at a discount because they're injury prone, who will produce when they when they're pitching for you, and put together a pretty good staff for rather than for eighty dollars, put it together for sixty dollars, and that's the that gives you extra money to spend on the hitters, where there's much less chance of walking into, uh, you know, uh, multiple guys like like Zimmerman or Garcia and and uh, Smoke. I mean, it can happen, but it's there aren't as many of those guys. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, PattonandCo.com, and Tell Wars. And uh, I was reading back on your personal blog at PeterKreutzer.com slash blog, and last fall you had a lovely little memoir about playing a game called Dice Baseball. And the really wonderful aspect of it was that your dad invented the game. So describe how he did that and how the game worked. Well, I, so I, um, the the story I have about how he invented it is, is a little bit made up. I was um, I was six or seven years old, and he taught me how to play the game. And he showed me um, notebooks that he kept when he was I, I, in high school. I think I, I set the year at about 1942, 
that um, he had a notebook where he played the entire season of the New York Giants in, using the dice baseball game, the, the day of the games, and he would play the game using his game against whoever their opponent was that day. And, um, and then he would uh, keep a detailed box score. And then he would tape in the actual box score from the Daily News of, the action, of that day's game. Um, and uh, I fell in love, I loved baseball. I fell in love with that game, and I played it re- religiously for a few years, um, doing the same thing with the, the Mets schedule, because, um, because I was a Mets fan in those uh, marvelous, marvelous days. And, um, and it, it, was, uh, it was fantastic fun, and it, it was um, a memory that has stuck with me about my, my, you know, my early roots in baseball, and and um, but I don't actually know how my dad figured figured out the game. I have been trying to re- reverse engineer it, and um, the thing that I, as I got a little bit older, I realized was that, and this seems obvious, but as a six year old, I don't think it occurred to me. The hitters were all the same. The pitchers were all the same. The dice rolls for them all. It wasn't like Stratomatic or um, or Diamond Mind where. It, like the thing that happened was based on the the, the skills and for you know um, from in my father's game, Ducky Medwick was just as likely to hit home run as um, as uh, Ernie Lombardo or, uh, or Ernie Lombardi or whoever you know whoever he had Mel Ott Mel Ott had the same chance of hitting home run as um, or as anybody else. So in that way, it was kind of silly. Um, and I, I then tried to improve it as I got older and, and eventually um, discovered that people had already made those games, like Stratomatic, that, that did a pretty good job of it already. Um, but the, the, those were the origins of the game and the, kind of the origins of me discovering um, the, the statistics of, of talent and, and being able to measure talent using statistics. Was your father a statistician or a, have some numbers-related job? Uh, my, he was trained as an architect, but he, um, he became a, he, he was a teacher his whole life. And, um, he taught primarily, uh, physical education and, um, and health. So, but he, he, um, had an affinity for numbers. He, he, um, certainly was interested in them. He told me a story once, um, that he and some other boys and I, I think it was in high school were horsing around and the principal said, you know, I think I've got a problem for you guys to solve. And uh, he said, what? And he said, he took him to an office, and he said, I want you to tell me how many paperclips, if we filled this room up with paperclips, how many paperclips would fit in this room? And um, I, I guess, I don't know why my dad was telling me this story, but um, it, but I, I think that indicates a certain amount of uh, dorkishness. In, uh, and he loved it. like that. He talked about solving that problem as being a great, great thing to do because they they had, they were faced with a problem and they worked together and they, they figured it, out a way to figure out how many paper clips would go in that room. And um, there was a real sense of accomplishment about that. And I remember from reading the piece on your blog that you later on started looking at the probabilities of the various dice rolls and tried to match them up to see whether they matched up with actual outcomes. And I don't recall whether you found out that they did or they didn't. 
They, um, there were some, there were some rough similarities. I've, um, since, and I, this is a, something, I've, a piece that I'm going to, uh, write soon, I hope, um, write about the game that I created using the same setup with, uh, two dice, starting with one dice and going to two or three dice rolls, um, to get a certain number of probabilities and try to have the game reflect the broad strokes of strikeouts and walks and ground balls and fly balls. Um, some of those are things that we know now that my father had no access to the actual numbers of how many ground balls and fly balls there were back then, I don't think. Um, and, and so we can, we can uh, check our work a little bit more closely now. And um, I've got a, a game that um, will ha- have that same unsatisfying, unsatisfying lack of talent about it. But we'll play like, Dice baseball games have been played since the 1860s. There, um, there are as soon as baseball was invented, there were people simulating the game with using dice and uh, various methods of turning the dice rolls into um, baseball events. Also in your blog at AskRotoman.com, you had a recent post about what you called the new home run reality. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, briefly, what is the new home run reality as far as you're concerned? Well, I, I think that that was mostly a link to a, a story that ran in the Ringer um, that uh, reflected that that uh, was um, Ben Lindbergh, I think, um, talking about some research that Mitchell Lichtman had done. Um, he did something really fascinating. He went out and he bought on eBay game-used baseballs from 2000, the first half of 2015, the second half of 2015. And from 2016, stored them in a humidor for a month and then sent them to the baseball testing lab in, I think it's in Lowell, Massachusetts, not the official baseball, but there's a, there's a sports lab in um, Lowell, Massachusetts. And, um, they did things like fired the ball at the wall at 120 miles an hour and saw how much it bounced. And, um, and the results are fantastic, especially because although they're not extreme in a big way um the, mitchell makes a case that they very much predict the ex, the explosion of home runs overall without there being uh like you know steroid powered 73 home run guys they're um it's a very much more broadly based um phenomenon and he says this is because the lesser hitters the guys who can't quite reach the wall when they get another seven feet, all of a sudden some of those balls go over the wall, and that that's um, that's what that's an explanation for what's going on. And it's one that's predicted by the core of the baseball and the um, height of the seams. There are three variables that they measure, and all of them are right now in, in current baseballs and in all baseballs since the All Star break in 2015, when this home run um, explosion erupted. Um, they've they're, they've all been in alignment to help hit people hit the ball farther and that's um and that's his explanation of what's going on i i you know i can't say oh yeah that's definitely it but it's it's pretty fascinating stuff yeah i talked about this last week on the show as well and and i thought it was also interesting that the the move 
uh, the difference between 15 first half and 15 second half coincided with a move of the baseball manufacturing facility from Haiti to Costa Rica. And nobody's suggesting, at least I don't think that anybody's suggesting that Major League Baseball did this on purpose. I think, having been around uh, factories a little bit in my life, that when you change facilities, you're going to have some small changes in how things come out. And it's not because of anybody trying to make it that way. It's just the way that things happen. And that, to me, also seems like a likely solution. And in past studies, Peter, I think they found that because Major League Baseball is the sole user of Major League Baseball baseballs, that the minor leagues use different balls, the Japanese leagues use different balls, and it was only the major leagues that had this this pattern of home run growth amongst lesser home run hitters, I think that there's a lot of evidence pointing towards it. You said in your blog that there should be some kind of Moore's Law that relates home runs to strikeouts, and I thought that was really interesting. Explain what you meant. Well, there's definitely, in the um, confrontation between the hitter and the pitcher, um, there are, if you want to hit the ball farther, you need to swing harder. When you swing harder, you're you have to start earlier um, generally, and that means guessing a little bit more and missing more. And uh, we have a pretty solid history of the best sluggers also striking out a fair amount of the time. Um, there are, of course, some sex exceptions, but um, but that's there's generally a correlation between those things. We now have a lot of information about um, the strike zone, what balls are called strikes and what balls are called um what balls that are called strikes are actually balls, and what balls that are strikes are actually called balls or backwards. We know when the umpires miss, more or less. And um, I think that is also, we know that the strike zone has correspondingly become skinnier and, and taller. Um, and we know that that's changed the way hitters used in those um, steroid-powered days. We also had a strike zone that was very flat and inside-out, and, pit, and hitters developed the, like the, they had the incentive to dive into the pitch to cut, get coverage on both sides, and they, they could reach the ball in both places. It's much harder to do that up and down, um, and so the, consequently there are more strikeouts, um, even when they're not hitting home runs. So I, there, I, I, what I was fantasizing about was um, creating some sort of ratio that allows us to see um, what's actually happening in the game. Um, between these variable numbers, um, but I don't know that if we start messing around with it, if we're actually going to come up with something. I haven't started to do that. Um, it just seems like something like you know what Baseball HQ does a lot of, like the power index or the um, or the uh, some you know the speed index, um, some way of ca- encapsulating these various phenomena in a number that could be applied over the history of baseball that would tell us. Um, some natural things about the game using a number rather than just saying, well, yeah, the Hack Wilson you know, drove in 194 runs. That was weird. <laughs> also on Facebook, there was a question making the rounds, Peter, asking people to name their favorite players in the various major sports and a few of the minor sports. A few of the players you chose when you responded that seemed a little out of the ordinary to me, like John Brophy in the NHL and Tracy Austin in tennis. I mean, Tracy Austin was a Grand Slam champion, and but you'd think more people would say Federer, Nadal, or Rod Laver, you know, people like that, Chris Everett or Matt Martina. 
But John Brophy in the NHL really struck me. You got Gordie Howe and Bobby Orr and guys like that, and you chose John Brophy. But this was because you actually worked with these athletes on various projects. So uh, what were you working with them on? Well, um, that was true of Tracy Austin. I, I worked with her and Cliff Drysdale and Fred Stolle, um putting together a, uh, an instructional video called Let's Play Tennis um, and for ESPN um, many moons ago. And, uh, and so I, I, so I, I chose, um, Tracy, I guess just cause she was fun and, um, and I, and I, there was a personal connection there. The, the hockey one is, is, um, a little sillier. I w- grew up uh, on Long Island, um, the, and our hockey team, which played in the Comac arena, which by the way is where Frampton comes alive was recorded. Wow. Um, was called the Long Island Ducks. There's now a baseball team called the Long Island Ducks, but then the hockey, the you know the minor league hockey team that played there was called the Long Island Ducks, and we went and saw them. And John Brophy was a player coach for the was the player coach. And he was by far the best player on the team, and and then, you know and an old rough and tumble hockey player. And um, I named him because that was when I followed hockey the most, the closest, and um, and I, I that seemed like a much more personal choice to me than. Um, you know, naming a Hall of Famer or something. Um, I could still picture that guy lumbering down the ice. Um, and that, to me, that's hockey. John Brophy actually coached the Toronto Maple Leafs for a while back in my time of watching hockey regularly. Uh, but you mentioned it. He's not a Hall of Famer, of course, but you did have a Hall of Famer in a football video that you shot? Yeah, I worked with um, Joe Namath on a, on, a, um, on a video that we did for... Uh, it was for Cablevision, I think, at, at the time. And um, there was a home instructional video playing football. It was called um, Joe Namath's Football Camp. And I, I wrote and directed it. I worked with Joe. You know, we'd sit down and go over what should be in the video. And then I would um, take the lessons from his book um, and convert them into visuals and, and a way to get the kids to do the right thing, which is um, something that, I, I originally did, um, I wrote and directed the um, an instructional called Little League's Official How to Play Baseball video, um, which also became League's Official How to Play Baseball book, which I worked with a, um, a, a great baseball coach named um, Ted Curley from Oswego, up your way, um, sort of, uh, on Lake Ontario. Um, and uh, we put together these instructional videos which led to then working with Joe Namath, which then led to um, doing another ESPN instructional with Ozzie Smith, who um, cool. let's play baseball with Ozzie Smith, and um, that I wrote and directed. So those were my those were my days as a uh, sports instructional director and writer. Peter, you mentioned uh, having worked with Joe Namath, one of my personal football heroes. He always came across uh, as a likable, sort of genial sort of guy. What was he like to work with? He was, um, you know, the the period that I knew him, he was, um, he had just married um, Susie, I think her name was. Um, they had a young daughter who's like a, a year old, less than a year old, maybe. Um, he was a he was a great guy, um, very friendly. He had his quirks. He like before every take, he would uh, make sure that his collar shirt collar was turned up because that was kind of the, his rebel his rebel image was tied up in that. Um, but he was he was very funny about it and um, self conscious of his role as an actor. But um, as as all athletes are that who go into 
go into uh, the media, as it were. Um, they, they, you know, work very hard at speaking and taking lessons and doing things in a very professional manner. And, and that was that was Joe Namath at, at that time for me, um, a great guy. And did, did even uh, this is, I guess, post career or nearly post career at that time for him? Did he, did you get a chance to watch him fire the football around? I I, I saw it once, but uh, from far away. Um, that's a good question. We we played a little catch out there on the in the practice field during breaks, but not not anything serious. Serious. I have a. I one time I worked as the um, stand-in on. There was a show that was. Franco Harris versus Jim Brown, I think, um, in, uh, in a casino in Atlantic City. And somehow I got the job to be the stand-in. And, and so um, I would run the pass routes that Franco Harris would, would be running, and Phil Sims would throw me the football. And, um, and it hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it really hurt. Um, I, but anyway, I didn't have that experience with Namath, but um, I did with Phil Sims. Reminiscing with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoMan.com, Patton & Co., Tout Wars. Uh, Peter, you're also one of the founders of the music site, RockRemnants.com, and every time I have you on, I like talking with you about that. You recently provided a link to a list of the Beatles songs, Worst to Best, uh, 213 songs, I think, and neither you nor the other Rock Remnants writers were that impressed by the list. So why did you link to a list you thought was flawed? Well, it's it's a funny thing. I um, had... There was another list um, a few weeks before of all ranking all the Rolling Stones songs, which was equally flawed. And um, but both both lists are interesting, both to mock you know some of the choices. Like, is you can't always get what you want really the best Rolling Stones song? I you know I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but and and then for some of the songs that are down the list, the, the great songs that for whatever reason the writers think are the worst songs. But, but criticizing that aspect of it is really silly. It's it's a little bit like getting all fired up about who's in the Hall of Fame and who isn't in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, they're, they're personal choices, uh, and and you can try and defend them with objective evidence. But it's really uh, it's it, those, those things are a matter of personal preference. What I liked it very much about the Beatles list, which um, I think the writer's name was Bill Wyman. Um, I get confused because there's another um, rock critic whose name is Carl Wilson, and he's not in the Beach Boys, just like Bill Wyman isn't in the Rolling Stones. But um, I, what I liked, uh, he he told a lot of stories. He'd obviously read a lot of um, the song by song guides and the, and the Beatles histories, of which there are many. And he had a lot of good stories about the context in which the songs were made and who was the actual writer and how did it reflect on their their um, their their oeuvre as, as writers or as performers, and um, I found there was a lot of good stuff in the, in the piece like that, even though the ranking was um, uh, as silly as they almost always are, and if I someday try to make my own list, everybody will think it's uh, my own ranking lists of those bands. They'll think I'm equally inept as, as uh, Carl Wilson seemed that day. 
You know, when I was in the uh, newspaper business, I spent many years as a music reviewer, and of course, every so often when we wanted to promote a little something to to boost circulation, somebody would come to me and say, hey, could you do a top 100 list of this or a top 50 list of that, best movies, best TV shows, just to get people arguing and talking about it. And I, I agreed with you. I thought that Bill Wyman did a really good job uh, in explaining his rationales for, some, for his choices, even if I disagreed with a lot of them. I don't think Good Day Sunshine is the worst song the Beatles ever made frankly i think there are a lot that were worse and uh on the flip side of that i don't think necessarily a day in the life is the best song they ever made but he does a good job explaining his positions and that's all you can really ask a guy to do that in in a lot of ways peter it's like making a fantasy baseball analysis uh, it's one thing to just say you should draft x x player but it's another thing to explain why Absolutely, and because we can see one of the interesting things when I did the rankings of um, hitters and pitchers versus expectations, um, one of the interesting things, and I haven't dug deeply enough into this, I hadn't ever noticed it before, the top 20 hitters who were bought on draft day, so the highest priced top 20 hitters, um, cost about $700, and they earned a little bit less than $500, $491. And if you rank the top hitters so far this season, they've... um, They've earned a little less than seven hundred dollars, six hundred and sixty-five, I think, and they earned and they cost the exact same amount, four hundred ninety-one dollars, as the um, as the the top hitters earned. Right. And I and I had never noticed this before, um, and it, it it was also true of the pitchers, not quite as obvious because the they didn't have the same number, but um, the there's something about the way about the pricing in fantasy baseball that like is inherently symmetrical because it's based on the, the basket of stats. Um, there's something in our analysis though that goes beyond that and talks about the, the relative risks and, and the chances of a, a broad range of variances. And that's really, um, I, as analysts, I think that's the thing that we can do to open people's eyes to what's, um, what's up and what's going on out there. Not, not so much saying this guy, you know, take this guy with your fourth draft pick, but really get into what it means if you take that guy with your fourth pick and how that relates to then your second pick and your third pick. Um, and your chances of the whole thing going wrong. I'm, I'm reminded also <laughs> Howard Bender this week in, in the New York Post has a story about how Trey Turner is a, has been a flop this year not worthy of a first-round pick. And that, that's true. He's more like a second-round pick. But he's, he's been, he, despite having struggled with getting on base and, is, and a fairly poor batting average, he has stolen a lot of bases. He's hit for some power. He's a much more complete hitter than Billy Hamilton or Dee Gordon is. And, um, and, and his earnings reflect that. He, is, you know, he, he costs like $34, and he's, he's earning like $32 or $33. That's... Um, that's having a bad year, and that—I mean—I think that tells us something about him as he goes forward. Unfortunately, the injury is going to um, stop that for this year for a couple months. But it's—it's um, it's, there's a lot to talk about, even when we, um, even if we eschew rankings. 
Yeah, when I was looking at that Trey Turner column that Howard Bender wrote, uh, the thing that popped into my mind was this says a lot about how the valuation process works in that you don't necessarily have to be a really good player to be a really good value player for fantasy purposes. And you mentioned some of those other stolen base specialists. I mean, they're not all-around good players that uh, that anybody would want, but they're the kind of guys, especially with the stratification of stolen bases we talked about earlier, they're the kind of guys you almost always have to have at least one of, even though ordinarily you wouldn't want any of them because all they give you is that stolen base number. And from that point of view, Trey Turner's worth every penny. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, before we uh, move on to the thumb exercises, we're talking about Beatles songs in the list. What's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, man. Well, you know, my favorite Beatles song is really a Paul McCartney song, and um, and it's really uh, both sappy. My my daughter was born 18 years ago, and I sang the song um, as part of the set list every night before she went to sleep for six or seven years. So, And I, it's the one song I can play on the piano, and it's the one song I can sing almost perfectly, and it's uh, Yesterday. It's just... It's not my favorite Beatles song, really, but it's the one, kind of like the John Brophy of Beatles songs. <laughs> Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday, suddenly. I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she had to go I don't know, she wouldn't say I said so Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. Now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why? such an easy game to play now I need a place to hide away oh I believe in yesterday mm-hmm. I like eight days a week is the song that just jumps out at me as uh, as um, hoppy is all get out but also Working hard, um, just a, a great, great rock song and pop song. Oh, I need your love, babe. Guess you know it's true. Hope you need my love, babe. Just like I need you. Hold me, love me. Hold me, love me. Ain't got nothing but love, babe. 
From their 1964 album, Beatles for Sale, Peter Kreutzer's pick is his favorite Beatles song, Eight Days a Week. And before that, Peter's John Brophy favorite from the 1965 Help soundtrack, Paul McCartney's classic, Yesterday. And Peter Kreutzer, before we let you go, I always like to ask our experts to talk about players who get the thumbs up and the thumbs down for the rest of the season. Any rationale works. Don't need to find out that Paul Goldschmidt is a thumbs up. Uh, we're looking for guys that might be able to acquire and trade or something like that. So let's start with your thumbs up, guys, players you think should interest our listeners. Let's go to the American League. Who's a hitter that gets the Peter Kreutzer thumbs up? You know, Manny Machado has been um, so terrible. And um, he's hitting home runs, but it's, uh, it sure looks to me like he's doing everything right. He's, he's hitting more ground balls than he has in the past, and maybe there's some adjustments that he needs to make. But he's a great hitter, and um, some people might be getting a little fed up with, with him at this point. And uh, last year, because of the stolen bases, this year because of the batting average, um, I'd say he's a good target um, for a, like a superstar who might be could be on the list in in the national league um a, a guy in a somewhat similar situation but uh but a little less rarefied is uh jose reyes who's been hot the last couple of weeks um has been kind of pathetic all season long but he's still hits, hits a little power has been running some um all the elements and it, it looks like he should be um you know hitting 80 points higher and uh I, you know, I think that's going to come. Maybe that's part Manny Machado's uh, problem, as far as a top value player, has been stolen bases, and that team just doesn't run. It, they started the season looking like they might open the uh, open the gates a little bit and let these guys go, but so far hasn't really been that way. Is there any concern that Manny Machado's just got a value cap based on the fact that the team doesn't run? Well, that is that is the big difference between this year and last year in terms of his preseason value. He was a mid thirty five, you know, like a thirty five dollar player last year because, you know, he was expected to steal fifteen bases or so. Um, because of the, the the way that lineup is is built with uh, Davis and Trumbo thumping in the middle of it, um, it it's kind of silly to to run ahead of them since it opens a base for them. It, um, and you know you want them to be able to swing and get all of it some of the, at least some of the time and um and I think that's that's been the big issue there um that brings his his value down you know whether that makes him a twenty five to thirty dollar player rather than a thirty to thirty five dollar player that's when he's sitting two eighty or three hundred not when he's sitting two ten or whatever he's sitting right now. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher that gets the thumbs up from you? Well, I've got Trevor Bauer on my um, American Dream League team, and he, I had him as a keeper. I bought him last year, and I was uh, so excited watching him, especially in the postseason. He um, he just looked like he'd solved the control issues, and he and he um, was getting on top of it more. He was throwing more strikeouts. Um, he's still throwing more strikeouts. He's still walking too many guys, but he took some bad um, tastings early in the season, um, and uh, partly his own. You know, he's given up a bunch of home runs, but um, he's he's been very good the last six weeks or so, for the most part. And um, I think I, I expect to see continued improvement in the second half, even if he doesn't bring the you know the walk rate down from. He's walking about four per nine right now, and that's that's not good enough, but it's 
his stuff is good enough that um, he can get around that if he doesn't give up the home runs, of course. And in the National League, a thumbs-up pitcher? Jeff Samarja is a, is a guy who um, is showing incredible control. He's striking guys out. He's um, He's gotten pounded some home runs. He's um, A lot of the guys he's put on base have scored. Um, his earn run average has to come down based on what the, you know what the the other stuff he's doing. Um, so I don't with on that team. I don't know how many wins he's going to get, but um, he should he should be a better bet in the second half than he was in the first half. Peter Kreutzer's thumbs up go to Manny Machado of Baltimore, Jose Reyes of the Mets, Trevor Bauer of Cleveland, and Jeff Samarja of the San Francisco Giants. Let's move over to the thumbs down players, guys about whom you think listeners should be a little more cautious. And again, we'll start in the American League with a hitter. So uh, this is kind of obvious, but Aaron Judge, I mean, really, he's, he's the guy is hitting 40% of his fly balls for home runs. He's got a BABIP of 423. Those are Those numbers are like a mountain ahead of the next guy. That, that's just not sustainable. Judge is a, We always knew Judge would be a patient hitter who would swing and miss a lot. He's, he's striking out almost 30% of the time, too. This is, he's going to, somehow, pitchers are going to figure it out, and he's going to settle down. He's going he's to be a perfectly good ball player, um, uh, but he's not, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be the guy. And um, I don't see any reason to think that Oh, he's going to keep it going in the second half, and and then get corrected out next year. They've seen everybody's seen him now, so um, the correction's going to come. And in the National League, how about a thumbs down hitter? Well, um, Giancarlo Stanton is um, hitting twenty one percent of his um, fly balls in the infield, or twenty five percent of his. Balls in play are infield fly balls, which are basically the same as striking out. They're always they always turn into an out. That is not um, it, uh, his home run numbers are are back up. He's he's uh, stayed healthy, but um, you know he's right, the type of year he's having is similar to the the disappointment of Byron Buxton and and Rugnet Odor, who are also popping up as much. Um, Stanton, I suppose, could start to drive the ball more, which would be put put him back into the you know round one type pick that he was until last year. But I, um, it just it, it feels it looks like it's going to go the other way. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs down? Irvin Santana has had a great first half, but he's, but he's starting starting to get roughed up a little bit. They've um, he doesn't strike out enough guys. He walks too many guys. He gives up too many home runs. Um, his ERA is, you know, it should be more, and it should be in the four somewhere. He's a really useful major league pitcher, but not so much for fantasy purposes. And finally, in the National League, a pitcher that gets the old thumbs down. Gio Gonzalez in a similar place. Um, he's he has been a top fantasy earner in the in the past, but. Um, he and he and he is this year again, and you know the temptation is to say, "Oh, he's back," but um, he's not the same pitcher who was a top earner, and he's and he walks too many guys, and he doesn't strike out as many guys anymore, and um, I, he's going to he's he's going to be less effective, even if he's he will stay on the mound. He might help the Nationals win the pennant, but he's um, not going to be a big fantasy earner in the second half as he was in the first half. 
Peter Kreutzer's thumbs down go to Aaron Judge of the Yankees, Giancarlo Stanton of Miami, Irvin Santana of the Twins, and Gio Gonzalez of the Washington Nationals. Uh, Peter, tell us where listeners can read more from Peter Kreutzer. Well, I'm, I'm uh, the uh, the fantasy football guide. 2017 is should be on newsstands in a couple of days. I don't um, write any of it, but I edit it all, and uh, and we have a great stable of writers who uh, put together a position um, surveys and uh, position pages and team pages and uh, straight to schedule articles for both daily and annual um, year long games, whatever we call those. Anyway, I'm, I'm mostly can be found at patentandco.com. Um, I'm writing some uh, baseball memoir stuff, which is going up at peterkreutzer.com slash blog. And uh, I'll be posting some more things about uh, midseason player prices at askrotoman.blog.askrotoman.com. Um, and uh, that's, I think that's about it for right now, until we get the baseball magazine going in October. Do you have a Twitter handle that people can follow? Uh, I'm at Kroyt, K-R-O-Y-T-E. And you post there somewhat regularly, I've noticed. I know I follow you uh, regularly, and it's a good follow as well. Uh, Peter, thanks very much for helping us out. I do appreciate it that we had some technical challenges in this interview that are not going to be heard by our listeners, but uh, I do appreciate you taking the time and driving all over uh, upstate New York trying to find a cell phone signal. Well done, sir. Thank you for your patience, Patrick. It's uh, really... Um, it really was a challenge, and uh, it's. Uh, I'm glad that it worked. I hope it works out okay for on your end because it's always fun to be on. And uh, maybe next time we should try to do it before I go away for the summer. All right, Peter Kreutzer writes at askrotoman.com and patentandco.com. Make sure you check out peterkreutzer.com slash blog because there's some really lovely writing there. And, of course, Peter's the commissioner and a board member of Tout Wars. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. But before we go on, as an HQ Radio podcast listeners, you know I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's not just because I work for the site, although that helps. It's because I use the site every day. I really love the mix of expert player news analysis, expert performance analysis, and position analysis that I find every day at BaseballHQ.com. Just in the last few days, the site had Brian Slack looking at the National League West in playing time tomorrow, the Arizona infield, the San Francisco bullpen, Colorado's catchers, and more. We had facts and flukes performance analysis from Brian Rudd looking at Gregory Polanco, Orlando Arcia, and other players. And I talked with Nick just a few minutes ago about the Market Pulse column, where Joseph Pitleski does a great job looking at the top added players across fantasy baseball, like Robinson Chirinos and Randall Grichuk and the top drops, like Eric Young and Wade Miley. And that's not even mentioning my favorite part of Baseball HQ, the fantastic HQ subscriber forums. In just the last 24 hours, there have been threads discussing Bud Norris's closer status, Nelson Cruz's power outage, Kelvin Herrera's trade likelihood, a bunch of players whether to drop, add, or trade. When you add it all up, 150 new or updated message threads, including discussion of the Baseball HQ radio podcast, by the way, just in the last 24 hours. So when you add it all up, yeah, I'm a homer. But I'm a homer who's rooting for a winning team and a winning organization. Baseball HQ, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. (laughs) 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at the Dodgers prospect Alex Verdugo is HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Los Angeles Dodgers' Alex Verdugo is quietly having an excellent season for AAA Oklahoma City. The Dodgers' number three prospect is hitting 464 of his last 17 games, bringing his year-to-date slash line to an impressive 344 with a 411 on-base percentage and a 462 slugging percentage. He has 14 doubles, four triples, three home runs, and eight stolen bases. The Dodgers drafted Verdugo in the second round of the 2014 draft out of high school in Arizona, and the 21-year-old continues to make rapid progress. Verdugo has a quick, compact left-handed stroke with good bat speed and should develop at least average power as he matures. His best offensive tool is his ability to control the strike zone and make consistent hard contact. Through the first 70 games of the season, Verdugo has 30 walks and has struck out just 28 times. He's an above-average defender and should be able to stick in center field once he reaches the majors, but he could also be an asset in right field, and his 70-grade arm is arguably his best tool. As good as Verdugo is, he isn't likely to be a fantasy stud right out of the gate. His career high in home runs was 13 last year, and his career slugging percentage is just .443, though he also owns a career .310 batting average. Fantasy owners in deep NL-only formats should definitely keep an eye on the Dodgers' Alex Verdugo, and long-term, he makes an excellent keeper. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Minnesota outfielder Zach Granite and Cincinnati starter Luis Castillo. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Although it's probably hot where you are, not many players are currently hotter than 24-year-old Minnesota Twins outfielder Zach Granite. He's only one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. After making his International League debut for the AAA Rochester Red Wings on May 7th, this former 14th round pick proceeded to bat a scorching 360 through his first 59 games in Rochester, including racking up a sizzling 470 batting average through 29 games in June. Not necessarily known for his power, he has only eight career home runs in the minors since 2013, Zach Granite does possess plus speed. In fact, the Minnesota Twins Minor League Player of the Year in 2016 earned that honor in part by leading the AA Southern League in stolen bases with 56. He also compiled a solid 295 batting average last season with four home runs, a total he seems ready to eclipse this season with three home runs so far. In other words, seven of Zach Granite's eight career home runs have come in 2016 and 17, potentially indicating some developing power. Notice that we said some power and not necessarily lots of power. Well, at least not yet. That's why Zach Granite, like all of our furry good flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. 
Even so, Zach Granite is an extreme contact hitter who could be a solid addition to your team later this season, just like 24-year-old right-hander Luis Castillo, who recently made his Major League debut with the Cincinnati Reds on June 23rd versus the Washington Nationals. Perhaps you remember Luis Castillo as the Miami Marlins Minor League Pitcher of the Year in 2016 before being traded to the Reds in an offseason deal for Dan Straley. Luis Castillo, who also led the Class A Advanced Florida State League in 2016 with a 207 ERA, has quickly been promoted through the Reds' system, perhaps even quicker than some expected. In fact, just days after Nick Richards correctly identified Luis Castillo as a pitcher ready for promotion as June 19th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com, the promotion came, just not to AAA as we expected, but all the way to the majors. His subsequent call-ups column for the June 23rd edition of BaseballHQ.com, Nick described Luis Castillo's fastball as sitting in the high 90s, sometimes reaching 101 miles per hour. Luis Castillo's repertoire also includes a power slider and an improving changeup. But, according to Nick, it's Luis Castillo's changeup that will likely be the key to him remaining a starter. While Luis Castillo's staying power in the majors may depend on his changeup, your team's staying power might depend on picking up both Zach Granite and Luis Castillo, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of one or better are strong starts. Ratings of minus one or worse, strong bets to sit. Between the ones, well, that's what we call the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own needs and risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including a dandy David Price against Chris Archer, here's Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Five pitchers have recommended start matchup ratings this weekend. Carlos Rodon tops the list at 192 for the Chicago White Sox game in Colorado, but that's based on just two starts in 2017, and at Coors Field, it's one to avoid. There are two true must-starts on Sunday. Corey Kluber has a 153 for Cleveland at home against Detroit, and Clayton Kershaw has a 109 for the Dodgers against the Royals in L.A., as if he needs the extra advantage of Kansas City being unable to use a designated hitter. On Saturday, Jeff Samarja of the Giants has a 103 for his home start against Miami, and in St. Louis, Rafael Montero of the New York Mets has a 106. Since Samarja's one-loss record belies his true value, let's make Jeff Samarja our marquee matchup man. Samarja faces Miami Marlins right-handed retread Vance Worley, who has a matchup rating of minus 192. That gives our marquee matchup the largest matchup rating differential of the weekend at 295 in favor of Samarja. It's not hard to see why Jeff Samarja has just four wins in 17 starts. The Giants are 18 games under 500 and 23 games out of first place in the National League West with a record of 34 and 52. Only the Phillies have worse records than the Giants overall versus teams under 500 and against right-handers. And since the Marlins are the better team, Samarja may not win this one either. But one of our BaseballHQ.com mantras is don't chase wins. So if you're shooting for skills, Samarja is a great target. 
He has an elite 2017 BPV of 170. For comparison, Kershaw has a base performance value of 171. In 111 innings pitched, Samarja has struck out 122 and walked just 13 for a whip of 114 and an expected ERA of 317. His actual ERA of 464 results from a trifecta of misfortune, a strand rate of 64%, a home run per fly ball rate of 17%, and both of his peak U.S. disasters at Coors Field where he gave up 15 earned runs in 11 innings. Samarja has nine peak U.S. dominant starts. BaseballHQ.com pitcher analyst Stephen Nickrand's July 1 Pitcher Buyer's Guide summarizes why Jeff Samarja is our marquee matchup man. Quote, he remains someone whose stats have a good chance of catching up to his skills during the second half. Unquote. Two Red Sox starters surprisingly stand out on the road in Tampa Bay. Rick Porcello on Saturday with a matchup rating of minus 075 and David Price on Sunday with a matchup rating of minus 167. How could a pair of Cy Young Award winners be a good combination to load your lineups against? Porcello won his American League Cy Young Award just last season in what was likely a career year. Price has the higher salary and the lower matchup rating, so let's make David Price our Sunday surprise. He draws Ray's ace Chris Archer, who has a matchup rating of 039. That's a sizable matchup rating differential of 206 in favor of Archer. Price won his American League Cy Young Award in 2012. That was the second in a string of six seasons with base performance values between 119 and 159 and roto values reaching $32 twice. In eight outings this season, Price has a BPV of 83 and a roto value of $2. Price missed this season's first two months with an elbow injury, but his velocity is vintage, suggesting no lingering effects. In a BaseballHQ.com fact and fluke column on Price published July 3, Ryan Bloomfield notes that Price had only two rehab starts before returning to the Red Sox rotation May 29. That might explain Price's seven-year worst control rate of 3.3 walks per nine and eight-year worst whip of 128. In three early June starts, Price walked 11 over 16 innings. In 19 innings over three starts since then, he's issued only three free passes. In his first five efforts, Price threw three PQS disasters. In his past three outings, he's posted PQS scores of 3, 5, and 3. Price still has a worrisome career-low ground ball rate of 38% and a career-high fly ball rate of 40% thus far, but he appears to be riding the ship. He's at least a wild card rather than a must-sit this weekend, and his matchup ratings will reflect his overcoming a slow start if he keeps steering the ship in the right direction. A quick look at the rest of the weekend shows two teams with both of their starters' matchup ratings in the recommended sit range. For the American League, Baltimore Orioles lefty Wade Miley and righty Ubaldo Jimenez look vulnerable, so use as many Minnesota Twins hitters as you can in their home tilt at Target Field. For the National League, the Cincinnati Reds send a pair of right-handers into the Arizona hitter's haven of Chase Field. Luis Castillo and Homer Bailey both have just three starts under their belts this season, and the D-backs team OPS of 850 is second only to the Washington Nationals 854. There is no reason to be afraid of snakes in your lineups this weekend. And finally, some notable wild cards worth the risk are Houston's Mike Fires on Saturday and Brad Peacock on Sunday in Toronto, Philadelphia's Aaron Nola at home Saturday versus San Diego, and Washington's Steven Strasburg at home Saturday against Atlanta. Here's hoping you enjoy the All-Star Game and follow it up with a strong second half. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at Baseball HQ and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the most important baseball book ever. 
I don't know if you saw the New York Times Sunday sports section this weekend. They ran a sad story about the decline of one of the most important figures in baseball history and in my own baseball history and my lifelong interest in baseball books. The Times yarn is about former Yankee pitcher Jim Bouton, who has had a couple of strokes and is now struggling with a form of brain disease that often leads to dementia. You might not remember Bouton's playing career. He was a fastball curve slider phenomenon who signed with the Yankees in 1959 and was promoted to the big club in 1962 as a swingman. In 1963-64, he was one of the top pitchers in the American League. He posted elite ERAs and whips and was arguably the best starter for the league champion Yankees in a rotation that included Whitey Ford and Mel Stottlemyre. He had three starts in two World Series, winning two, including a complete game 2-1 thriller against St. Louis, and his one loss, a 1-0 to some guy named Drysdale who threw a three-hit complete game shutout. Combining those two seasons, Boughton was top 10 in ERA and adjusted ERA and top 5 in whip, alongside names like Drysdale, Marischal, Koufax, and Gibson. He was also top 10 in innings pitched with just over 520, which today we would call pretty good for four seasons. After that workload, the wheels, or more accurately, Boughton's arm, fell off. He got hurt, starting just 25 games in 1965 and just 19 in 1966. In 1967 and 68, he threw less than 90 innings combined as a Yankees reliever and spot starter. And in 1969, well, he was a Seattle pilot. And it was with the expansion pilots that Boughton went from being a two-season footnote in baseball history to one of its most important figures, because he wrote a book called Ball Four. Ball Four came out in 1970 and caused a sensation. It was basically a diary, with Boughton and editor Leonard Schechter serving up candid, often hilarious anecdotes about the oddities of day-to-day life as a major league ball player. We readers learned about the ball players' real workplaces off the field, the locker room, the bullpen, the training camps, and all those planes and buses and hotels, the places the fan never gets to see. And instead of the typical white bread hero worship of sports writing, we got the rest of the story. We got the ribaldry, the vulgarity, the pranking, the amphetamine use, the womanizing, the pettiness, and the personal differences that inevitably form when 25 or more men, many of them competing for each other's jobs, are packed into each other's jockstraps for seven months every year. Along the way, Boughton made or revealed memorable characters, his teammates who otherwise would long ago have vanished into the deep mists of baseball's history. We read about Boughton's favorite foil, Fred Talbot, about Gene Braybender, Gary Ding Dong Bell, Ray Euler, Don Mincher, and all the other cast-offs and sad sacks who made up the expansion pilots in their first and only year in Seattle. We also got a glimpse of some genuine stars when Boughton was traded to the pennant-contending Astros, whose roster included superstar pitcher Larry Durker, all-star outfielder Jim Wynn, and future double MVP, and for my money one of the top ten players in baseball history, Joe Morgan. Boughton aimed some of his best darts at the Pilots' management. He portrayed General Manager Marvin Milks as a sneaky, largely incompetent penny-pincher. He characterized Field Manager Joe Schultz as a Falstaff of sorts, an amiable dunce who provides comic relief from what is mostly an underlying comedy and offers only occasional bursts of baseball insight. Boughton really ridiculed pitching coach Sal Magley, who refused to accept Boughton as a knuckleball pitcher. Infield coach Ron Plaza came off as a bromide-tossing drill instructor type, and clubhouse manager Eddie O'Brien 
as a small-minded, ass-kissing bureaucrat who spent his time hectoring the players about using too many baseballs and about not eating sunflower seeds in the bullpen. Boughton also wrote candidly about players on other teams. He drew a lot of fire at the time for his portrayal of former Yankee teammate Mickey Mantle, whose mean streak and obvious drinking trouble offset his prodigious talents, including hitting a mammoth home run while under the effects of an equally mammoth hangover. Boughton says Mantle said upon staggering back into the dugout, those people don't know how hard that really was. And you see, that's just it. We don't know how hard it is. And even though oceans of ink and forests of paper have been spent lionizing baseball's heroes, Boughton did something even more important. He showed us that baseball players are people. The first time I read Ball 4 was in 1972. My pal Lindsay, a baseball fan, lent it to me and told me I really should read it. And I did, and I was hooked. I've read Ball 4 at least once a year ever since, more than 50 times in all. I can read it from cover to cover in a couple of hours now. I glide efficiently through the text the way a park ranger can walk along a familiar trail. I can open the book at random, even after a year, and continue reading it as though I just put it down 15 minutes before. I've owned at least 10 different copies of Ball 4, including the two autographed 1993 editions currently in the baseball section of my bookshelf. I have two because I got one for myself, and my brother gave me another one for Christmas that same year. Ball 4 sparked an interest in the game that I've had ever since, and an equally consuming interest in the writing about the game. As we close this edition of Master Notes, let me offer some suggestions for your reading pleasure during the long, cold winter of the All-Star break to come. I've read a ton of player autobiographies, of course, and the only one I can really recommend, other than Ball 4, is Sparky Lyle's The Bronx Zoo, which had the advantage of being set in the tumultuous Yankee clubhouse of George Steinbrenner, Billy Martin, and Reggie Jackson. I've read it quite a few times since I first read it in a Saskatoon diner, where I paralyzed the entire place by roaring with uncontrollable laughter at the story of a training camp prank involving a baseball glove and a hot dog wiener. Sort of in the same genre, not a player, but I loved You're Missing a Great Game by the great manager Whitey Herzog. A lot of keen insight and a lot of profane storytelling in one underappreciated volume. And speaking of managers, I've reread Earl Weaver's Weaver on Strategy many times as well. He was a manager's manager, always looking for and usually finding some kind of edge. And the book, while not providing laughs, like Herzog's, is brisk and efficient. And it's a terrific gift for a newcomer to baseball who wants to understand the game's in-game tactics a little better. Among player biographies, the two that stand out for me are Joe DiMaggio, The Hero's Life, Richard Ben Kramer's warts and all study of the Yankee Clipper, and Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, Jane Levy's friendlier analysis of the legendary's Dodgers lefty. I also can recommend four classics about the business of baseball, starting with my favorite, A Whole Different Ball Game by Marvin Miller, the executive director of the Players Union for many years, and the guy who got the players the huge paydays they were earning with their skills. Boughton was playing when Miller was hired to run the Players Association, and he recalls knowing Miller was the right man for the job when General Manager Milks came up and told him to be very, very careful about this guy Miller. Another baseball man in Ball 4 called Miller a mustachioed four-flusher, and you have to like a guy who gets that description. In his book, Miller is very straightforward and analytical in describing the labor climate he ended up managing, but he's also really funny, especially when he's belittling former Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. Some samples. Kuhn's predictions were so far off that he couldn't even predict the past after it happened. 
Kuhn must be singled out as the most important contributor to the successes of the Players Association. If Bowie Kuhn hadn't existed, we would have had to invent him. And my personal favorite, after describing Kuhn's clumsy attempts to foster what he called reciprocity with Miller, Miller said this, Bowie's other intention was to pick my brains. There was scant possibility of reciprocity in that department. Another must-read for anyone interested in the history of the baseball business is Lords of the Realm by John Gelyar. More recently, Diamond Dollars by former MLB consultant and current Sabre president Vince Gennaro has provocative analysis of how the baseball business works, especially the important link between winning and revenue growth. And May the Best Team Win by the economist Andrew Zimbalist is a 2004 study of MLB's monopoly and the long-term threat it poses to the game at that time and in some ways still. You can always count on books by Roger Angel and David Halberstam, their money in the bank, and there's a collection of Red Smith columns called Red Smith on Baseball, the game's greatest writer on the game's greatest years, and that really shows a master stylist at work. But that style might come across as a little ornate for modern readers. And of course, the teams and game are from a long time ago. Finally, I think Michael Lewis's Moneyball is really important for fans to read. And Sam Walker's Fantasyland is fun and worthwhile for fantasy owners. But I haven't read either one of them a second time, and I doubt I ever will. Just to wrap up, that Time story about Jim Boughton said that after his first stroke, a misuse of blood thinners had led to a hemorrhage in his frontal lobe that essentially wiped out Boughton's language skills. He had to relearn how to read, write, speak, and understand. This is a tragedy. As a writer and a person, Boughton was marked by his language skills. He was witty, quick, articulate, and eloquent, a genuine pleasure to read and to hear. It appears those days may be gone or fading fast. But he left a legacy behind. I hope you found a baseball book to love as much as I love Ball 4. And if you haven't, do yourself a favor this break and read or reread Ball 4. You'll be glad you did. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 26 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoMan.com, PattonandCo.com, and Tout Wars. Peter does a great job running the Tout Wars organization, and he's a tremendous guest of the show and of me personally. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentator was Harold Nichols. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.